Hi there, this is Rich Cooper with the Space for You podcast, the Space Foundation's conversation with the leaders of today's space and who make all of our space activities possible. I'm joined today by Alan Ladwig, the author of See You in Orbit, Our Dream of Spaceflight. Alan has a distinguished career both in government and industry, where he was the leader for the Teacher in Space program that brought Krista McAuliffe and Barbara Morgan and educators to the forefront of the space STEM programming that we see so often throughout NASA and across the world. Alan, uh, his book here is a wonderful chronology of what has happened in not just recent space history, but how all of this is evolving to be a dynamic environment where citizens are involved. But before we get into the book, Alan, I've got to ask, how did you get your start in the space community? Well, it was an interesting story when I was working on my degree at Southern Illinois University. And in the Christmas break of 1969, I went out to visit two college friends, Linda Whiteside and uh, John Whiteside, her brother, uh, in New York City. It was my first trip to New York City. And they were living there with their parents, and her, their father was J- Colonel John Whiteside, who was the head of the Air Force Public Affairs in New York City. And the first thing he said to me when he picked me up at the airport was, Hi, we're going to New Worlds. And I had no idea what that meant, but I said, Sure, why not? And it turned out that he had been contacted by an artist named Earl Hubbard and his wife, uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, who was the daughter of Lewis Marks of Marks Toys. And the three of them were getting together to create one of the first citizens' advocacy, advocacy groups called the Committee for the Future. And they wanted me to be the student leader of that movement. So while I was in New York, I was briefed by the Hubbards and Colonel Whiteside, and from there, uh, all of a sudden, I found myself drafted into the space movement. I had not been very all that much of a follower of space at the time, but that one meeting totally changed my career and totally changed my life. So when you take a look at that first step, How does that step get you into working at NASA? Obviously, an advocacy group like that raises public consciousness, but NASA at that point is very much in the throes of the Apollo age. How does your advocacy work get you engaged with NASA? So working with the committee, we did two national conferences at Southern Illinois. The first was in uh, 1971, in the spring of 71. The second was in 1972. And then from that, the committee created what they called SYNCON, for Synergistic Convergence. And it was a conference format that physically built a large wheel that had sections in it to divide sectors of society. And as the conference went on, the walls between those sectors were removed, and the goal was to, how can we come together from different parts of society to create a positive future? So I then went with them to Los Angeles in the fall of 72 to do a SINCON out there. And I moved in to an apartment with Robert K. Weiss, a friend of mine from college, who, by the way, also wrote the foreword to the book. And we were going to be the heads of the West Coast aspect for the committee. But right after that conference, uh, I ended up getting drafted. So I went into the Army. It was a month before the draft ended. 
spent two years in the service, came back, and the committee had moved their headquarters to Washington, D.C., uh, to a, a large house over uh, off of Porter Street and Connecticut Avenue. And when I went there to try to get my job back, they said, well, we've changed the way we're doing things, and uh, now we have everybody living in this mansion, basically, uh, for a room and board and $25 a week. Well, having come out of the Army, that didn't sound all that attractive. So I ended up applying for a job with a group called the Forum for the Advancement of Students in Science and Technology, FAST. And uh, that's where I met Leonard David, who many of your listeners will know is one of the best uh, aerospace reporters out there. And I worked there for five years. And one of the programs we were promoting was have a student experiment program for college students on the space shuttle. And so we were lobbying NASA to do that. And this is in the late 70s when the shuttle is just being built. And kind of the last thing NASA wanted was a couple of young people representing college students bugging them about putting college students' experiments because they had other uh, worries at the time. They were over budget, they were uh, their schedule, they were behind on schedule. But we kept pressing it. We ended, we ended up uh, testifying on it on the Hill to one of the Senate committees. And uh, Senator Frank Moss from Utah uh, took a liking to us, and he kept trying to help promote that idea. Eventually, uh, Dr. Glenn Wilson, who was uh, on the staff of the Senate Space Committee, came over to NASA to run education. And he knew of my interest in the student program, so he came and actually recruited me. Uh, FAST was going out of business. We were, uh, we were running into financial difficulties. And Glenn uh, Wilson asked me to come to NASA to run a student program. NASA decided to do it for, co- for high school students, not college students. So my first uh, job at NASA was to run the Shuttle Student Involvement Project for high school students. And the interesting part about that story was he had tracked me down the day before President Reagan uh, took his oath of office because Reagan had said that he was going to sign a hiring freeze. And Dr. Wilson managed to track me down through my ex-wife, who just happened to know where I was that day. I came in running down to NASA. I took the oath of office at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The next day, Reagan got inaugurated, and the first thing he did was sign a hiring freeze. So had Dr. Wilson not been persistent to find me, I'm not quite sure what my career would have been like at the time. So you made it in under the wire. Under the wire. Under the wire. Under the wire. You talked about their working with the experiments and scientists at that, and, and you're having worked with the high school students, and you mentioned the college student experiment effort, uh, there's always been this push, with obviously, for pushing science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM as people call it. And when we talk about successful careers in space, there's another discipline that you in particular in your own career bring, and that is art. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what role do you think the arts play in the shaping the future of space exploration and space commerce? Well, I think it's from the artists that we have received much of our imagery about space. It's, you know, think back, and and many of your uh, listeners will probably be too young for this, but the uh, Collier's magazines in the early 1950s ran a series of, I think it was seven 
issues that focused on the future of space. It was one of the first general interest publications that featured space, and it, they got the information from the likes of Werner von Braun, Willie Lay, Fritz Heinz and his brother, whose name I'm drawing a blank on at the moment, but uh, Chelsea Bonstell, the famous space artist, and some other space artists were the ones that illustrated those magazine articles. So they were. that's the first time that the general public really started to get an, imagine, uh, an image of what the future of space might be like. And if you go back and look at some of those drawings they did and their paintings, they're just fabulous in terms of the imagery they were able to portray. Then when you move forward into the 60s and you think about the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey and what is the image that is burned in everybody's mind? It's the Pan Am space shuttle entering into the uh, orbiting space station. It's that painting by Robert McCall, another famous space artist who has done so much to give us imagery about space. And now, in the future, you're starting to see uh, kind of a renewal of interest in art. And what kind of excites me is that there's this Japanese billionaire that has is scheduled to fly on an Elon Musk rocket, I believe the space the spaceship, uh, on an orbit around the or orbits around the moon, and he wants to take eight artists with him. So I think that's significant that this individual who happens to own an art gallery and is a big art collector uh, sees as it is important to take artists with him on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You talk about, and, and I'm glad you brought up the uh, imagery that uh, Kubrick's 2001 of the Pan Am shuttle going into the Space Hilton, whatever it was called, but it was the incredible image that was just jaw-dropping uh, at the time. In your book, See You in Orbit, Our Dream of Spaceflight, you give an incredible narrative that chronicles citizen participation in spaceflight. And as much as this book chronicles a very unique portion of space history, it's also a first-person narrative from someone who lived through some of history's biggest space moments. That's a unique way to tell a story. So I have to ask, what drove you to write this book? Well, it was from uh, all the letters that I used to get from the public volunteering to fly in the shuttle. And again, this was in uh, 1984 is when the Space Flight Participant Program began. I was uh, picked to be the manager of that program, and it included the, then it, it evolved into the teacher in space, journalist in space, and the third category we were looking at, although hadn't been officially approved yet, was an artist in space. So I had this unique inside uh, uh, seat to watch the beginning of this program, and so I got all the letters from people. And I think probably over a couple year period, I probably got 10,000 letters. And back then, again, this is before the internet, so we didn't get many emails. It was all correspondence from uh, the United States Post Office. And to read those letters, they were so heartfelt. And, you know, people, the, the common phrase was, look no further, I'm the one. And they would then lay out why they should get to go. And they might be, uh, 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 a, a returning veteran and 
that was at a time when we didn't have as much focus on veterans and putting veterans forward as we probably should have. And when I think on hindsight, having selected a veteran for a space flight probably would have been a pretty good thing to do. But there were people that in their 90s, and they would send me pictures of them uh, jogging and working out. There were women that wanted to have their babies in space. There were kids that were 10 years old, wanted to be the first kid in space. And they would lay out their dreams. And then when I started to look back at history, uh, I found that this, the motivations that people had to fly in space were no different in the 80s than they had been in the 60s when people signed up for the Pan Am First Moon Flights Club. We talked about the Pan Am shuttle in the movie 2001 Space Odyssey. Well, Pan American Airways jumped on that idea and created this First Moon Flights Club. And they created it in 1968, the year before we landed on the moon. And over a three-year period, it ran until 71, 93,000 people signed up uh, to get those cards or to, for a reservation. And on there, they got a, res a card back in the mail that had a number on it that showed where they were in the sequence. People used to send me those cards to see if they could turn it in. Then if you go back into the 50s, in 1950, the Hayden Planetarium sponsored a lecture by the German historian Willie Ley. And Ley was giving a speech on the conquest of space. And as a promotional stunt, they set up an interplanetary tour reservation booth outside the lecture hall. And they had a form to fill out. Interplanetary tour, where do you want to go? Mars, the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, estimated time of departure 1975. And again, this, and this is for a lecture hall that held 800 people. Over the next four years, they received 26,000 requests for that reservation form. And those people also got a, a, a card that gave them a number and where they were in line. And people used to send me those cards uh, when I was at NASA to see could they turn that in. And they had letters that went with it when they wrote to the Hayden about why they wanted to go. And then I went back still farther and found out that in the 1920s, when Robert Goddard first was doing his rocket experiments, and he talked about a rocket that could someday go to the moon with humans, he received hundreds of letters, he and his sponsor, the Smithsonian Institution, and people begging to go along on this rocket that hadn't even been built yet. And they, they would pour their hearts out to him about, they had meaningless lives. This would give meaning to their life. Or this would put them in a position when they came back they could run for political office. Or this would give them a different perspective on, on Earth and they could do great things for humanity. So those motivations remain the same from the 20s to today. And if you put the letters down that people sent in, you would have a hard time determining what year they were written other than the, the letters that Goddard got, the penmanship was much better than today. But those were the, the things that uh, inspired me that, you know, this is a shared dream. This dream has been around for a long time. And the question is, well, are we ever going to get to that day where we can use the salutation, see you in orbit, 
or is this going to continue to be an elusive dream that we keep reaching for? Alan, when people would send you these letters sharing their motivations and their aspirations, they're sharing their dreams. How do you let someone down on their dream? Obviously, you couldn't promise or give anybody any of those seats. That's, How did you deal with that? That was the hardest part. And it started uh, even before the teacher was selected. It, the letter started pouring in, uh, at least to me, after the, uh, the task force that Administrator James Beggs had set up to study the idea, should we fly civilians on space in space on a space shuttle in the first place? And he went to the advisory committee. He said, "We are without a procedure." He was being besieged by VIPs. By he was getting letters from people wanting to go, and he just got frustrated. He didn't know, you know, how do, how do we deal with this? So he asked the advisory committee to go off and studied it. They did study it for a year, and then they came out with their report that said. We think, and this was only after, they started their work after the fourth shuttle flight, which was the last of the orbital flight test. And so here we had only had four flights. There may have been, uh, maybe STS-5 or 6 had flown by the time the, t the uh, report actually came out. But they said, yes, we, we think that you could fly perhaps two to three citizens a year on the shuttle. And as long as you had a purpose, and the purpose was to communicate what the spaceflight experience was all about. There was a notion at the time that astronauts, while they were great at their jobs as pilots and mission specialists, they weren't necessarily that great in communicating. Now, a lot of astronauts pushed back on that because they gave hundreds of speeches, they met millions of people, so it was a little bit unfair but nonetheless, that was the criteria that was used. It had to be for communication. So immediately, people started writing in and wanting to fly. At the beginning, I tried to answer letters individually. And then we were just overwhelmed and we couldn't do it. So we had to develop a, the dreaded form letter and to try to be uh, sensitive to the dream that the people had, but yet let them down easily and encourage them to maintain the dream. I don't know how successful we were at letting them down, but one of my favorite stories was a young man named uh, Jerry Stos. And he started writing to us as a high school student. And he not only wrote to me, he wrote to senators, congressmen, he wrote to other government agencies. He tried to get anybody he could with influence to write to NASA on his behalf to let him fly in the shuttle. And this was during the Spaceflight Participant Program when we had already announced the teacher and the journalist. And so I had to keep telling him, sorry, Jerry, but there's just, you know, your, your time is not right now. It's, we have these categories we have to follow. And he was not deterred. He kept flying, or kept writing. And eventually he sent out an envelope in that said, please don't let Alan Ladwig read this letter. Because I was the one... I don't care who he wrote to, all those letters came to me to reply. So eventually, he, he kind of uh, accepted the fact he wasn't going to get to go. He ended up marrying somebody, moving to Bolivia, and then wrote to us trying to be the, a payload specialist from Bolivia. Well, <laughs> lo and behold, these many, you know, 30 years later, 
it turns out we were friends on Facebook and I didn't realize it was him because he was using his initials and so when I spoke in LA last week I had a chance to meet him and lo and behold he kept to his dream he ended up working for NASA for as a contractor for uh, other with other companies and he put money aside and has some way finagled that he is going to fly on a Virgin Galactic flight and perhaps also a Blue Origin flight. Oh, wow. So for people that have a dream, and I mentioned him at the, at the beginning of the book and then at the end of the book about what persistence is all about, it is possible if you, you know, there, there's a reason to maintain your dreams. Wow. Uh, well, you now have something new to, to write in an afterword for the next version of the book. Right. Well, right. I put it in the book. It's in there. Okay. It, it matches it. Well, let me... You've talked about the term spaceflight participant. What's the difference between an astronaut and a spaceflight participant? The, the difference is in the amount of training they have. A spaceflight participant and uh, received the same kind of training that a payload specialist and I probably need to just take a minute to explain that. There were originally the astronauts, and they were all test pilots. Then, by the time they came to Group 4 in the 1964 time frame, I think it was, they started allowing scientists to apply. But they hyphened it. They called them science-astronauts, and the test pilots referred to them as the hyphenated astronauts, and they, they were like down the on the pyramid from them as the test pilots at the peak and then you had the scientists and it took a long time before they started referring to those astronauts to the science astronauts as just astronauts then when the space shuttle comes along you had a new category mission specialists and mission specialists didn't have to know how to fly jets although many of them ended up uh, learning how but their goal and their purpose of being in, in the core was to do specific experiments on a space shuttle mission. Then, a few years later, they created the category payload specialist. And a payload specialist was somebody who had such a unique capability and understanding of an experiment that it would be easier to train them to fly as an astronaut than to teach a mission specialist how to do that experiment. And the best example was the first corporate payload specialist, Charlie Walker from Donald Douglas, who flew an electric phoresis experiment. And it was believed it was easier for him because he had designed this whole apparatus. It was easier to teach him to fly than it was to teach somebody how to operate that. And he ended up flying three times as a payload specialist. But there was still, they were down on the pyramid. Again, payload specialist was at the bottom. They didn't get the whole training that a mission specialist or test pilot uh, astronaut would have received. They had enough uh, information given them to do their experiment, to learn you know, what buttons not to push, how to be, uh, operate safely on a shuttle mission. And the backup candidate for a payload specialist often didn't even receive the full amount of training that a payload specialist. Then in 84, we come up with the Spaceflight Participant Program, and that's even lower on the, on the uh, pyramid. And to show the difference between an astronaut and a Spaceflight Participant Program, there's this great picture that Life Magazine had 
when they did an article about the spaceflight participant program, they had actually started the article before we had decided on a teacher, and they were showing celebrities. And they had Walter Cronkite, Jane Fonda, I think Robert Redford might have been in there, uh, a famous artist was in there, John Denver. And then I had kind of told them on the side, because I knew their magazine wouldn't come out for a while, I said, you might want to look at an educator. So they had a picture of an educator, and she was sitting on the floor in a flight suit behind a stack of maybe six inches, eight inches tall of manuals that would be used to train a spaceflight participant. Standing next to her was a full-fledged astronaut standing with a five-foot-tall stack of manuals. And that was to emphasize, here's the difference between an astronaut and a spaceflight participant. And it was in that amount of training that you had. So the, the spaceflight participant was only going to fly once, whereas astronauts, most of them flew more than once, although not all did. And uh, it became a uh, it became a little controversial then about would you call Chris McAuliffe an astronaut when she came back and that was an insular parochial problem within NASA nobody on the outside cared as far as they were concerned Chris McAuliffe was an astronaut and I found it humorous that then years later when Dennis Tito flew as the first commercial quote, astronaut uh, or space tourist to the space station with the Russians, there was an internal thing that, oh, well, he can't call himself an astronaut. He's a space tourist. And again, that was only within the, the, the NASA and the East European Space Agency community that that was even an issue. Everybody else called Dennis Tito and Anush Ansari and Richard Garriott and the other people that flew as those space, quote, tourists referred to them as astronauts. And now we look to the future, and the same thing is going to happen. What do you call the people that are going to go on suborbital flights? They're going to go high enough to uh, go into space, but it's going to be a very brief mission. Their training is going to be brief. Do they, quote, deserve to be called astronauts? And I believe both... Uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin intend to call their people astronauts. And I think the FAA, through the Commercial Space Transportation Office, is even coming up with a kind of an astronaut badge. I believe they're going to refer to them as spaceflight participants. But again, anybody else is going to call them what, what they really are, which is they went into space, they're an astronaut. Alan, I want, to take you, I want you to take us back to early days of the shuttle program. You talked about Administrator Beggs and yourself being, you know, having all of these letters pouring in. As, as the advisory committee started to look at this and figure out what they wanted to do, how did you categorize, or, or, or what was the debate like to pick, say, a journalist over a teacher, over an artist? Those are the three types of positions that were talked about the most there. But what went into, what were some of those arguments like? Uh, obviously, a journalist you know, says, I can report and, and tell this story. An artist can say they capture it, and a teacher can instruct on it. How, what was that fight like? That, that, that's a great question. I should actually take you back even a little before that, and that's in the mid-'70s 
when NASA started looking at flying somebody other than an astronaut for the first time. And that's a story that is not that well known. And that's because uh, in the early stage of the shuttle, probably mid-70s, just as it's being developed and built, there was a committee, the Aeronautics and Space Advisory Board at the National Academy of Science. They took a look at what NASA had planned for at that time was going to be the first six orbital flight tests. At that time, there were going to be six. Eventually, they only had four, but it was supposed to be six. And the Academy felt that there wasn't anything all that interesting or anything that would grab the public's attention. So they, NASA should think more about what could be interesting to do. And one of the things that George Lowe, the deputy administrator, looked at at the time was flying a civilian. And he wanted to fly Philippe Cousteau. And Philippe Cousteau is the son of Jacques Cousteau. And the thinking there was perhaps they could go and do for space what Jacques, Philippe could do for space what Jacques Cousteau had done for oceans because he really had made oceans a public awareness thing. Well, it turned out that there were some ramifications involved and they weren't quite sure, the Cousteaus weren't quite sure if they wanted to commit because Lowe was going to leave the agency and he, it, they were afraid it was tied to him and if he left, Cousteau would be hung out to dry. And then Walter Cronkite's name was mentioned as an also candidate. Well, then the public affairs folks got involved and said, look, you can't just pick one journalist. Because, again, in the early 70s, they were getting letters from all the, the, the three major networks. Back then, you only had CBS, NBC, and ABC. And each of them had wanted their science reporters to be on a shuttle mission. And they wrote in and made their case. So public affairs took a look at how would you go about selecting a journalist while the Office of Spaceflight continued to look at what they called a unique personality. And a unique personality could have also included a statesman, an uh, artist, an entertainer, a, uh, a celebrity, and they promoted that. Well, then eventually the two groups came together and decided that you had to have a selection process of some kind. Public Affairs kept promoting it should be a journalist, but then the whole thing got shelved because, as I said earlier, behind schedule, over budget, and it just wasn't a priority, so it got pushed to the back burner. Then it gets reignited in 81 when uh, uh, James Beggs comes on board, and the advisory committee takes a look at it. They suggest a communicator, be it an educator communicator, a broadcast communicator, or a written communicator. That then is turned over to an internal NASA committee that became the Spaceflight Participant Committee, originally chaired by Phil Culbertson, later by Ann Bradley, and it had some senior officials from the relevant NASA offices that took a look. And they debated who should go first. And as it turned out, there had been an internal education committee from the then Academic Affairs Division that looked at ways to promote STEM education. And one of the things they said was we should fly a teacher. So they came in with their recommendation already. The public affairs people kind of pushed a journalist. 
nobody was pushing the artists. That that really didn't come up until later on. The 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 real debate was between a teacher and a journalist, and they just hash it out internally uh, on that committee, and eventually decided that an educator would be the best way to go forward. It was a very, very unpopular decision with the journalists. I got grilled pretty heavily when I went down to talk about it at the Kennedy Space Center uh, for Charlie Walker's mission, uh, talking about what the criteria would be. But that decision held. The journalists then came as the next category, and we were actually working on the journalists in space competition. We were well into that competition at the time of the Challenger accident. So what were the qualities that you were looking for in this very special crew member, and and how did you and NASA find Krista McAuliffe? We, when we decided to have the teacher, and by, by the way, then the, the political appointees at NASA at that time were Republicans with the Reagan administration, and of course, and having been a political appointee myself, you're always looking for ways to have visibility at the White House for your agency. So they thought that this would be a great thing for Ronald Reagan to announce, that he should announce that the decision had been a teacher in space. And there was some pushback on that because it was felt, well, then it's going to politicize the whole thing. There was an election going on. Reagan was going to be running against Walter Mondale. The National Education Association had endorsed Mondale, weren't for Reagan. And it was going to offer a lot of distractions, I thought. But the political appointees went out. Reagan stood up at a ceremony, at a award ceremony in D.C. to announce the teacher. And, and then we decided that that couldn't be run by NASA. We needed to have a kind of a certain distance from it. So uh, we looked to the Council of Chief State School Officers, which is an association of all the head education officials in each state. And without them, we could have never done this program because they set up the competition in all 50 states in the uh, overseas communities, District of Columbia. We ended up with 114 candidates because you had two per uh, location. And they set the criteria that it had to be a teacher that had been working for five years, full-time teacher, no administrators, and that way it could insulate NASA a bit from any criticism about what the criteria was. And we said, look, we went to the experts. We did the same thing for the journalists. We went to an outside organization, the Association of, of Deans of Schools, of uh, Association of Deans of Journalism and Mass Communications, and they helped determine the criteria for the journalists. What we gave them as a guideline was it had to be somebody that could communicate the story, that would co cooperate and be a team player with the other crew members, and could come back and, and have a commitment to tell that story to the public. So that's kind of what we were looking for. After the Challenger accident, things obviously changed for NASA, the teacher in space program, and, and the efforts to put a civilian in space. What were those days like, and what lessons can we learn from those experiences? The immediate concern was finding out what went wrong with the shuttle. The, as I had mentioned, the journalism space program was actually going on at the time. We did let them proceed after the accident 
to, uh, they had already selected 100 semifinalists. We let them take the next step to go to 40 national finalists, and then the next step from that was they were going to go down to five. But the, it was decided that the program would be canceled because we simply didn't know when it would be possible to fly a journalist. This concludes part one of our two-part podcast with Alan Ladwig. Don't miss part two, where we will hear about the role of Russia in human spaceflight, space tourism, and Alan's book, See You in Orbit, Our Dream of Spaceflight, and more. Keep your eyes and ears open for more Space for You episodes by checking out our social media outlets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and of course our website, www.spacefoundation.org. On all of these outlets and more, it is our goal to inspire, educate, connect, and advocate for the space community, because at the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.